say corporately that we mean these words that we're saying. Pray that uh, where there's a gap between what we're saying and what we're meaning, that you would fill that gap for us with your presence. Lord, so many of us are not where we want to be, and I pray that uh, today we would take a step in the right direction. Maybe not five steps, maybe just one step. Jesus, we give you praise and honor and credit and glory. So you are the one and only. In Jesus' name we pray. Welcome to Bayou City Fellowship. We're so grateful that you're here. You take your Bible, turn to John chapter 13 and Philippians chapter 2. John chapter 13 and Philippians chapter 2. So we've been in this series called Fields. Based on the scripture where Jesus said the fields are white with harvest. Another place he said that the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few, and we're trying to do something about that here at Bayou City Fellowship. And in the same way, someone might ask you, what field of work are you in? And you might say, I'm an engineer, or I'm in construction, or I'm in some kind of service industry. Uh, Could you answer the question, what field of kingdom work are you in? We've talked about from the Word of God that you have a field that God has called you to work in. Uh, We've talked about that there are people in that field. We've talked about how to have credibility with those people. Last week we talked about how suffering gives us the opportunity to identify and sympathize with people in our field. And today we're going to talk about love and humility. Last fall I took our kids, Amanda and I took our kids to an event at their school called See You at the Pole. Show of hands, anybody ever been to a See You at the Pole? Who knows what I'm talking about? Yeah, a lot of us do. Uh, The idea is that there'd be one Wednesday morning every year, usually in September, where students all across the country would gather around the flagpole of their school and would pray for their school, pray for their teachers, pray for administrators, pray for our country. They've been doing it for many years, and we heard that they were having one at our kids' elementary school, and so we took them up there early. And when we got there, it seemed like kind of nobody was in charge. And and so after a while, a a mom started kind of leading out, and and she said, well, maybe let's pray. And she kind of led us through a few prayers. But then we ran out of things to pray for, and nobody was stepping up. And I'm not really a take charge guy in in that kind of moment. And so somebody said, well, maybe we should sing some songs. And so uh, they led us in some songs. Even some of these songs had motions, which was a little weird to do as an adult. And the kids, you think the kids were full on in it, but they were just more there in spirit. Um, and not really participating. And, and so we're just kind of standing there pretty awkwardly like we've prayed, but I'm pretty sure we've not prayed long enough. And so we feel bad just saying, well, see you next year. And so we're just kind of lingering and out of stage right comes this guy and he just kind of zooms right in to the middle of the circle. And apparently there were a few people who knew who he was and knew that he was a pastor because they immediately uh, gave him control over the the whole thing and he took control. And it was like, you know, Jesus himself had walked into our prayer circle, the kind of honor they were giving this guy. And I was thinking, well, if I knew that they were giving out honor, I'm a pastor too, you know, like, uh, I didn't know. I thought it would be weird if I let you know that I was a pastor. But if I knew that you guys were going to be real excited about it, I, I would have said something a, a long time ago. Because it's kind of weird sometimes to, you know, say, well, well, I'm a pastor. I think it's sometimes weird to bring up that you're a Christian. You know, I don't know if you've, you've ever wrestled with that. Like, how do I let these people know that 
I'm a follower of, of Jesus, that can be a, a little awkward. I mean, I guess you could, you know, say, uh, hi, my name is Curtis. I'm from Houston, Texas, and I'm a born-again believer. There are people who do that, probably not in this room, but there are people who, who do that, and that seems a, a little bit weird. So how do you let people at your work know that you're a Christian? How do you let people in your family know that you're a Christian? How do the people on your street know that you're a Christian? It can really be a challenge, can't it? How do you bring that up in a credible, authentic, and non-weird way? Thankfully, Jesus was looking out for us, and he gave us the answer. John chapter 13, these are some of the last words that he said, says to his disciples before he's arrested, tortured, and crucified. Verse 34, I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You must also love one another. Verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So he answers the question, how will people know that you are a Christian? They will know you by your love. Now remember, Jesus does not have exclusivity in first century Israel on a rabbi with disciples. He's not the only one. In fact, there were probably more than a handful of teachers just like Jesus, not just like Jesus, but similar to Jesus who also had disciples. But what he's telling his disciples is this is how people are going to know, not that you're just you know, a, a vague disciple, but that you are my disciples by your love. How will people know that you follow Jesus? Well, I go to church. Not necessarily. Well, I'm a good person. Not necessarily. Well, I read my Bible. Not necessarily. They will know that you are a disciple of Jesus by your love. Look what he says. He says, just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. So there's our blueprint. How do we love like Jesus? We act like Jesus. How does this kind of love behave? Philippians chapter 2, we see what Jesus' kind of love looks like. Verse 5, make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How many of you have ever flown Southwest Airlines? Show of hands. Yeah, we fly Southwest Airlines because every once in a while you can get a deal that's so unbelievably cheap that they're, you're pretty sure that they're not making any money on this flight. Right, but when you, you fly Southwest Airlines, you have to give up some of your inalienable rights as a human being, right? Like you don't get to buy a, a seat on the plane. You get to buy a, a right to stand in line. And so they don't line you up, uh, you know, according to your seat, your A1 or, uh, you know, uh, seat D4. They, they do you by groups and, and there's the a group and the a group is where you want to be and, and you ever been in the southwest airlines airport when they call the a1 group you know they all line up there and then they turn around and look at you in the b group as if there was something wrong with you it's total judgment happening there and it's judgment happening there for two reasons number one because they know that you are not a frequent flyer 
And in no, no real conversation would, you know, even here on Sunday morning, would somebody say, well, what do you do for a living? And you'd say, well, I do this and this, and, and, and I have to travel. And then you would talk about your travel as the most exotic thing in the whole world. Yeah, I'm never at home. I never see my kids. I'm never around my wife. It's just so wonderful. It's so fantastic. No, when people talk about business trip, it's fun for the first, you know, five hours. The five hours is the trip part, and then the rest of it is just business, and they complain about travel. Even this morning, somebody has complained about how much they have to travel until you get into the confines of the airport, and then it's like a badge of honor, right? Then it's like you're the cool kid in school because you have to travel all the time. You're the frequent flyer. You get special clubs that you get to go into. You get a secret security line that us commoners don't get to go in. You don't even have to take your shoes off when you go through the security checkpoint. And then you get to line up in group a. And so they turn around and they judge us because we're not frequent flyers and frequent travelers. Uh, we, didn't, we weren't blessed enough to have that kind of job or to have enough disposable income that we can just hop on airplanes whenever we want. They judge us. The other reason that they judge us is because we didn't, uh, you know, uh, check in at the first available moment. You know those people, it's like you can check in 24 hours and they got their stopwatch out. They know as soon as it hits and they're checking in. We weren't like that. We were just normal. And because we were normal, we're in the B group, but they judge us from the A line. And why does everybody want in the A boarding group? Because the closer you are to the front, uh, you get to pick your seat on Southwest Airlines. It's not assigned seating. So if you're in A, especially if you're A1, then you get to pick whatever seat that you want. And everybody has a different version of what is the best seat on the airplane. So we couldn't agree on that today, but I think we could all agree on what is the worst seat. The worst seat is the back row middle because it's in the middle and everyone hates the middle and because it's the one closest to the bathroom. And so the whole flight, you're hearing that door and then the flush. You have to hear that the whole time. We can all agree that's the worst seat. What Philippians chapter 2 is telling us is that Jesus could have had any seat that he wanted, but he took back row middle. The Son of God, Holy King, Alpha and Omega, Prince of Heaven, worshipped by angels. He could have had any seat that he wanted, but he willingly said, I'm going to take the lowest seat. I'm going to take the worst seat. I'm going to take back row middle. And in his thinking, and in the kingdom of God, from the back row middle, Jesus could identify and sympathize with us in our humanity. From back row middle, he could heal the sick. From back row middle, he could destroy the works of the devil. Back row middle, he could open up the kingdom of God for us. From back row middle, he could offer up his life as a sacrifice on the cross so that we could have forgiveness of sins. And because he did that, he took the lowest place. What happened in verse 9? For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this tells us the future of the people who are in your field that God has called you to. They will confess that Jesus is Lord. But there is a confession that comes too late. There is a confession of Jesus as Lord that happens right before you're thrown out into permanent and eternal darkness. 
That's why it puts urgency in our hearts and in our footsteps for the people who are in the fields that God has called us to work in. Because they are going to confess Jesus as Lord. But will they do it while they still have time? The Apostle Paul was really coming around the same idea that Jesus was with his disciples when he was telling them to love one another and love like Jesus did. Look how he starts chapter 2. In verse 1 it says, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. So there are four if statements there. And what they're saying is, if any of this is real, if any of this Jesus stuff is having any effect in your life, verse 2, fulfill my joy, mean make me very happy by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal. So Paul is saying, if any of this is real, then let it be real in how you love one another. And he says to focus on the same goal. A shared goal, a shared purpose will go a long way in ensuring that you have long-lasting love relationships. A shared goal will help your marriage. A shared purpose will help your friendship. A shared uh, purpose will really bind us together as a church family. Because what happens when you're bored? Listen, first of all, you are not your best when you are bored. So if any of you are bored right now in life, you're not at your best. You're not at full strength. But what happens when we're bored? What happens when we don't have a purpose? You do what comes naturally to you. And what comes most naturally to think about yourself and for me to think about myself. So if we don't have a purpose with our lives and we just are thinking about ourselves nonstop, positive and negative, but just thinking about ourselves nonstop. And the more you think about yourself, the more self-centered you and I become. And when we become self-centered, it's almost impossible for us to be in a long-term loving relationship. Because you can't overlook any offense when all we're doing is being self-centered. When all we do is think about ourselves all the time and somebody says something to hurt our feelings, we want to blow the friendship up. When all we're doing is thinking about ourselves all the time and somebody waits five minutes to text us back, we take it super personal. Then we send them 20 passive-aggressive texts for the next two days. But when we're just thinking of ourselves all the time, which is what we do when we're bored, it's almost impossible for us to have long-lasting, loving relationships. What goal does he have in mind here, focusing on one goal? He's talking about people hearing and responding to the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Listen, having a shared purpose, specifically this shared purpose, it, it doesn't erase offenses. It doesn't mean that there aren't real legitimate hurts. You can have a shared goal and still hurt one another in your marriage. But what having a shared purpose does is it right-sizes the offense. You see it in the context of what is really, really important. Relationships that share a common purpose are always stronger than those that just share common interest and common proximity. If you're great friends with somebody right now because you work together, when work is removed, if there's not a shared purpose there, bigger than work, the friendship will dissolve. If you hang out with somebody right now because they live next door to you, if there's not a bigger purpose that's a part of your relationship, when the, your addresses are changed, so will your relationship be. Then he goes on in verse 3. 
Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. Rivalry, your version of the Bible may say selfish ambition. It's ambition at the expense of another. And rivalry and selfish ambition uh, thrive in fear of scarcity. In a scarcity mentality, like the Rockets right now are uh, in a playoff game. They're sort of, they're showing up to the games. And there's a rivalry there. There's competitiveness. Why? Because only one of those teams, the Golden State Warriors or the Houston Rockets, will advance to play in the NBA Finals. It's not like at the end of their games, the the NBA is going to go, hey, you guys both really tried hard. Why don't you both move on? No, only one team can move on to play the Cleveland Cavaliers in a few weeks. Just one. That's why there's rivalry and competition. And that's okay. It's okay to to want to win. You know, this isn't uh, the Bible speaking out about your kids, you know, just running out there and being terrible in Jesus' name. You know, that's not what what anybody is talking about. Uh, You know, it's the same as, uh, like, there's a rivalry because there can only be one uh, really great best city in Texas, and it's not Dallas. And everybody said, amen, right? It's Houston. And there's, there's rivalry. There can only be one. It, it thrives in a scarcity mentality. The problem, though, is when we take that scarcity mentality and we take that competitive spirit and that rivalry and we remove it from an event, remove it from a sporting endeavor, remove it from a situation, and we just aim it at a person. That's where we cross the line. It's okay to want to win. It's probably not a good idea to make it your goal to just always win against a specific person. We fall into this trap. Someone else's success feeds into the fear that I'm not going to have any success. Married folks who want kids, but there's been a delay and maybe there's been a delay because husband and wife aren't on the same page about timing or whatever. And there's a baby born that's, that maybe could have been their baby. Rivalry exists in a scarcity mentality. Single folks, you have a wonderful single folks, you go to a wedding, you're happy for them. What, you're sad for you, right? Because scarcity mentality, your probability just went down a little bit because they got married. Which, by the way, I, I want to have a, just a little pastoral moment. Can we have a pastoral moment? I'm going to put a pause, time out on the sermon. Listen, we have the most amazing uh, single men and single women here at Bayou City Fellowship. I mean, the cream of the crop, love Jesus, wonderful people. Um, and uh, when I talk to you and when you tell your stories, 90% of you want to be married. Uh, just having a hard time as a pastor just bringing these two groups together. And so I just wanted to take this opportunity just to speak into it a little bit. So, so um, I'm going to start with the men, really, because men, you are the problem. And uh, <laughs> here's what I want you to do, men. If you see a young lady across the way, just in life, not even at church, just in life, and you think that she is cool, you think that she's pretty and you're attracted to her and you want to get to know her a little bit more and she loves Jesus in the same way that you love Jesus, here's what you do. You ask a friend, hey, I'm thinking about asking that girl out over there, what do you think I should do? Now, if you're the friend, you got to be honest. If he doesn't have a shot, just let him know. You say, 
I don't know, bud. I think you should pray about it. <laughs> Men, if you go and get advice and somebody says, I think you should pray about it, that's code for she's out of your league. Don't do it. She's out of your league. It's a bad idea. It's rejection waiting on you. Don't do it. No. So if somebody says pray about it, then just walk away. Don't, don't, don't learn from the movies. No, it's not going to work out for you if you try real hard. The, the big romantic gesture, it's not going to work. She's out of your league. You're supposed to pray about it. That's what God's saying. She's out of your league. Let it go. Right? So, but let's say that your friend says, man, I don't know. I think that could work. I think that'd be good. Then here's what you do. You walk over to her in person. Call her on the phone. That's second best. Do not send her a text. In person, you walk over and you go, hey, my name is Curtis or whatever your name is. I'm already married, so this isn't talking about me. Whatever your name is, I think that you are really cool. I know we don't know each other that well, but I think you're cool, and I would love to get to know you a little bit better. Can we go please have coffee? I don't, I'm not asking you out on a date. I'm not front-loading it with a lot of weird pressure. I just think that you're cool, and I'd love to get to know you. Will you please go and have coffee with me? If you do this, men, it will set you apart from 99% of the other men in your generation. It will, because here's the strategy of every young American male right now, is I'm going to be friends with this girl for as long as possible and then hopefully turn it into a romantic relationship. And the reason that you're doing that is because you are afraid of being rejected and essentially you want to be friends so long that she asks you out. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. So you walk up, say, I think you're cool. Will you please go out with me and have some coffee? Well, what happens if she says no? Well, then you look, lick your wounds and lower your expectations. <laughs> Ladies, if he asks you to go to coffee and, uh, and you go and then it's like weird and he's weird and you don't want to hang out with him anymore, then just... Let me know, and I'll call him and break up with him for you. So I believe I've taken every possible excuse off the table. So if you get a phone call from me this week, men, just, it's not going to be good. It's not, it's not you, it's her. So, but you guys distracted me from my sermon, Philippians chapter 2. Right, but that happens. That happens for our single folks, and it happens uh, for all of us, that when somebody gets something that we want, we want to be happy with them, but we just feel this tension inside of us because it's one less opportunity for us. That's rivalry. That thrives in a scarcity mentality. And it shows zero faith in God. If you feel very competitive against people in this world because they are getting something that you feel like should be yours, it's showing zero faith in God, that God is your provider and God is your protector and God is looking out for you and God knows the number of your days and God orders your steps and that God will be there for you when you don't get what you want. And rivalry undermines, it erodes any loving relationship. You can't genuinely love someone that you feel is a threat to you. He says, don't do anything out of rivalry 
And the next one, it says conceit. I love the way the NIV words it as vain conceit. It's broadcasting our pride. It's our pride posing so someone else can take a picture of it. We're all prideful. There's a, a reality. We're all prideful, but it's, a di- it's different when we put our pride on display for others to see. Last weekend, I took Annabeth to the store because she was invited to a birthday party. She's six, and so it was a party of, you know, for little girls, and we had to go and get a present, and, and so we're, we're picking out presents, and we're really having a hard time because, you know, the, she'd pick out a present, and it would be like $70, and I'd be like, I love you more than life itself, but I wouldn't buy you $70 worth of toy. I'm definitely not buying your little friend uh, that I don't know that well $70 worth of toy, so let's put that back, and, and then I'd pick out one that was like $3, and she wouldn't like it, of course, and, and so we're just kind of going back and forth, and We can't really settle on anything. And finally, after about 15 minutes of really searching for a good gift, I pick one up and I show it to her and she gasps and grabs it into her arms. And I'm like, sweet, man, we found one. And so I'm making a beeline for the front of the store. I'm ready to get out of there. I spent way too much time in the kids section at the the Target. And so I'm ready to get out of there. And I turn around after a few steps and she's not with me. In fact, she's putting the present back on the shelf. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. We made a commitment there when you took it out of my hand that we were leaving this store. What, uh, what are you doing? And she goes, I don't want to give it to her. And I said, why not? She says, because I'm afraid it's going to jealous me. Which is one of her go-to phrases. Whenever her brother Jackson, who's nine, is doing something that she's not able to do because he's bigger and taller, and, you know, she still has to sit in the little booster seat and he doesn't have to do that anymore. When she feels like he's rubbing it in, uh, she'll either say to him or she'll tell us, Jackson is jealousing me. He's jealousing me. And what she means is he's taking his opportunity and putting it on display for me to see. So that's the thing that we don't think about our pride. Usually when we think about pride, we think of it only in terms of, of how it's a negative in, internally. We never think about how the broadcasting of our pride might be affecting someone else. How is it being received? Some of us have undermined relationships that we deeply care about because we've not ever thought about the effect of our pride on that friend, on that family member, on that person at work. Some of us are managers and we've never really ever thought about what it might be like to be Not the manager. Conceit is when we take our natural human pride and we put it on display for people to see and it is undermining your relationships. And he says, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. This is humanly impossible more than once. I think one time in a relationship, you would be willing to say, I'm going to put this person's interests above my own, but not repeatedly and not consistently. In order to look out for someone as more important than ourselves, we need to be supernaturally empowered by the Spirit of God. Then he goes further and he says in verse 4, everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. See, God's called you to a field. 
And he's giving you responsibility with the people of that field. And so when you take on that responsibility, what you're saying is I'm going to order my life, not just according to what's most convenient for me, but I'm going to order it according to what's uh, good for me and what's good for them. Amanda and I moved years ago to the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex so I could work at a church. And uh, when uh, we moved into the city, we didn't really know anything about the city. And so we're talking with the church and we quickly learned that there were two halves of the city. There was one north of the freeway and there was one south of the freeway. And the one north of the freeway was much newer. The one south of the freeway peaked in the 1960s, but it had yet to be like revitalized and now it's cool and all the young people, it was just kind of just old and random and weird and not nice. And north of the freeway was just brand new things. And so it had brand new apartment complexes. They weren't expensive, but they were new and nice. And that's really where our heart gravitated towards. But we would hear these little comments from the people of the church that we were starting at when we would say, well, we're looking at this apartment complex. If it was north of the freeway, we would get like, well, yeah. If it was south of the freeway, closer to the church, then it would be like, oh, that's amazing. That's the best place in the whole world. So we pretty quickly realized that they kind of want us to live south of the freeway. You know how God sometimes like blinds your eyes to, to trick you into doing things that he wants you to do? We found this townhome and it was on like three streets of townhomes. And, they were super ugly on the outside, but somehow when we stood in front of them, we were like, oh man, this is wonderful. And you walk in and there's like stains on the carpet and the kitchen is like super small and there's no bathroom downstairs and the only bathroom is like through the middle of your bedroom. And, but we're not thinking, oh, it's gonna be weird when people come over to our house and we're like, well, just go and hang out in our bedroom before you go to the bathroom. You know, we weren't thinking about any of that. And just blinded and so we signed our lease no problem. And as soon as we were moved, moved in, we were like, what on earth did we do? This is a terrible idea, but it's too late. The first six months that we were there, I'm not sure anybody told me I was a good preacher. I'm not sure anybody told me that I was doing a good job at the thing that I had been asked to do. But what they did say is, we're so glad that you live here near the church. I don't know why it was so important to them, but it was. Super inconvenient for us but we're not supposed to look out just for our own interests, for the interests of others. See, that's the thing about looking out for somebody else. It's rarely convenient for you. And it's rarely convenient for me. But the people in our fields, there's a countdown clock. Their confession that Jesus is Lord is coming, but it's coming too late. So who among us would be willing to overlook our convenience for the best interests of someone else. This path of humility is a path of love. And if you choose to try to walk down that path, Satan will come for you. Satan will come for you if you try to choose humility over self. Matthew chapter 16 tells this amazing story. It says in verse 21, from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. What Jesus is saying to his disciples is, I'm gonna go and sit back row middle. Back row middle, that's where I'm headed. 
And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. What he's saying is, Lord, you're A1. You're boarding group A. You're the son of God. You're the Messiah. You're the Holy One. We believe in you. You are the Christ. You're the one we've all been waiting for. You deserve first class. Not only does you, you don't deserve first class. You deserve a private plane. And you're telling us you're going to go and sit in the very, very back? Look what Jesus says. But he turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns but man's. Satan will come for your humility because he knows that you are most powerful when you are most humble. The arrogant, they get all the fanfare. The prideful, they suck up all the oxygen and the attention in the room. The manipulator, he gets the promotions. But the humble get the power of the kingdom of God. The you that your field needs you to be can only happen through humility. And Satan knows that. That's why when you start thinking selflessly, you're just bombarded with selfish thoughts. That's why when you start to take care of someone else, somewhere in the back of your mind, you wonder, who's, who's taking care of me? Because you are your most powerful on the path of humility. You are at your best in back row middle, not first class, not A1. But the path of the humble scary because there's no guarantee or credit of credit or recognition is there i mean i think all of us would gladly take the very back and worst seat if we knew that right before takeoff the flight attendant would come and say man thank you so much for walking all the way back here and because you did that we want you to sit next to the pilot you can even touch some of the buttons (laughs) we'd all go take back row middle if we knew when we got off the plane The CEO of Southwest Airlines would be there. We'd all do that. That's why humble love is so scary. You can't be humble and protect yourself. You can't be humble and keep looking out for yourself. But humility and love are glued together. And how you love is more important than what you accomplish. How you love is more important than your reputation. How you love is more important than the expansion of your business. How you love is more important than the number in your bank account. And that kind of love only comes by following Jesus down the path. existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name 
so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to follow you down this path. Lord, I know that there are many in here who would rather be shipped off to war than to be assigned a life of humility. There are many in here of us who would rather be stationed in Siberia than daily have to choose a place of humility because it's scary. It's hard to self-protect from back row middle. But this is where you sit, and so this is where we will sit. And we pray that it would have the same effect as it did when you took that seat. Salvation, eternal life, the kingdom of God. Pray that there would be harvest in our fields through humility. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand to your feet? We're going to finish our service with a time of ministry and prayer as we do every week.